Hello and welcome to another Dairy Dialogue podcast, and this is number 123. And that's how elementary it's going to be. And that's about enough 1960s pop for one day. I'm sure there are many people out there that have never even heard that song. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I have to say that growing up, our musical diet was quite different to that of North America. Obviously, there were crossovers, but it was always quite funny being in a band in Canada and then playing songs, and then later on hearing them on the radio and saying, ah, that's how it's supposed to be played. It was a strange week as well. I actually got to wear sunglasses at the weekend, and no, it wasn't in an attempt to look cool. I think the only way that I could do that these days is probably through identity theft. No, it was actually sunny here. It was great to have some decent temperatures for the end of February and into March. And it is March. And what's great about today is that it's the same whether you write it the US way or the UK way. It's still 3 slash 3. Nice to know that we're on the same page 12 times a year. I also had some computer issues, and it's something I wonder if any of you have ever experienced. I was writing an article, and I noticed that there was a comma that wasn't supposed to be there, but I couldn't delete it. I tried backspacing, selecting it, hitting return, then deleting it, but nothing would get this comma to move. After about five minutes of trying, it turned out it was dirt on the screen. I won't bore you with all of the other things that happened this week because you're here to hear the guests, and so I will let you know who they are this week. It's another three-interview podcast with conversations with Suzanne van den Eshoff, Global Marketing Director at Friesland Campina Ingredients Food and Beverages, Good Sport Nutrition Founder and CEO Michelle McBride, and Kevin Quigley, Commercial Director at UK Food Waste Recycling and Sustainability Company Warrens Group. We also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. And it was almost the week that our new dog made his podcast debut because he barked several times during one of the interviews. But I did manage to edit them all out. I say bark, it's more like a sharp shriek. He's a border terrier, and they're probably named that because they are so loud that you can hear them at the nearest border. And before I get emails saying, no, you're wrong, I know they're called border terriers because they originated in the borders area between Scotland and England. So really not that far from here. Not that we can actually go there at the moment because of all the travel restrictions. Anyway, let's get to the news from the past seven days that you may have missed. And I'm sure I missed some as well, but we won't dwell on that. The Scottish Government is adding dairy alternatives to the free nursery school milk scheme. We had some more financial results from the A2 Milk Company, Glanbeer and Lando Lakes. Sustainability and milk quality will determine Fonterra's payment to farmers. All the Foods Ingredients has developed a dry blend protein for formula manufacturers. And we had our roundup of the new products in the dairy aisles for February. Tate & Lyle has a new online nutrition tool. Danone is moving to sell its shares in the Chinese dairy company Mingyu. And Danone is also set to split the roles of chairman and CEO into two separate positions. Saputo Dairy UK has received a grant to boost cheddar production. Swistacode has launched a rapid test to identify A2 milk producing cows. And a study shows oregano or oregano oil boosts milk production. First Milk in the UK has announced a £12 million investment in its cheese and whey facilities. 
Lactalie Canada finalized its acquisition of Agropour's Canadian yogurt business, and Australian researchers are helping cheese producers reduce waste. Krista Harden has been named the US DEC president and CEO, and Lactalie was hit by a cyber attack. You can read all of these and plenty more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to this week's guests. Is it too early in the day to talk about cheesecake? Well, it's probably never too early to talk about desserts. Friesland Campina has been involved in a project to make an alternative to the New York cheesecake. I'll leave it there because to tell us more is Suzanne van den Eshof, Global Marketing Director at Friesland Campina Ingredients, Food and Beverages. So you worked on a new cheesecake with Ceylandia. I wonder if you could tell me about how that process works all the way through from working with the company through to coming up with a new product. Definitely. I can probably talk about it for hours. So uh, okay, good, good. In, case, uh, <laughs> in case you think your audience will uh, slowly uh, be uh, lose, lose interest, then please stop me. But uh, yeah, no, it's a very nice co-creation that we did together with uh, Ceylandia, who's a customer for, from us for years already. So we have a good relationship. But this is actually, yeah, took the relationship to a new level. And it started with Ceylandia seeing a trend in the market for uh, premium cheesecakes. And uh, I can imagine yourself, Jim, if you go to, uh, for example, Starbucks, basically everywhere you would find uh, cheesecakes. And uh, the premium quality of it is appreciated uh, really across the globe. But Ceylandia found out it's not that easy to make such a, such a premium quality cheesecake. And that's why currently um, there's one supplier from the US, from New York, who ships them, uh, the ready-made product, by air freight, frozen across the planet. So that's also not a very sustainable solution, as you can imagine. But when you make a cheesecake, there's uh, one common um, uh, challenge in general, and that's the breaking of the surface. Well, I had it myself as well, but then at home, you know, you just put a topping or fruit on top or sprinkles or whatever, and it's it's okay. But obviously, in food service, this is not enough. So uh, to get to this premium quality, the surface cracking was uh, basically the main challenge. And Celandia reached out uh, for us for help. So uh, it got started basically with our R&D teams uh, teaming up. And uh, they did many iterations. They looked at various different ingredients, different processing. And uh, after actually 94 iterations, so we ate a tremendously amount of cheesecakes, um, yeah, they cracked the code. And the solution is uh, found in a, a whey protein from uh, from Friesland Campina, uh, Nutri Whey. Yeah, that uh, manages to keep the surface nice and smooth. So that was the first challenge that needed to be solved. But of course, it's not only a technical challenge. It's a cheesecake is appreciated for its uh, specific sensory profile. And there are both our sensory panels from both companies teamed up in uh, deciphering the code, really, of the perfect uh, cheesecake. So what is the mouthfeel and texture and taste and smell? And uh, that gave us, uh, both R&D teams, a lot of new insights in how exactly to develop uh, the recipe. I think what I really like as well, it involves ingredients from our sides, but also we looked at, okay, of course, it needs to be made with a fresh cream cheese. Well, we do have a lot of uh, cheese expertise in-house, so we also developed a new uh, cream cheese for this recipe. So in the end, now we have a, a simple solution for bakers across the planet that works every time. It's premium quality, and it's also more sustainable because you start basically from a powder mix and fresh cream cheese, and you don't need to fly uh, frozen products all, uh, all across the globe. 
And you mentioned the fact that the people there were eating lots of cheesecake. I'm sure they were quite happy with that. Yeah, sure. This is, in that sense, one of my most delicious projects. Yeah, of course, COVID has its impact. We did, it started already in 2018. So before COVID, uh, a lot of the recipe uh, challenges were solved. But uh, over the last year, we have been uh, sending uh, each other sometimes prototypes because we could not meet face to face. But yes, lots of cheesecake. I love it. So was this a totally new thing for you to to develop? I mean, it was not something that you'd done before, but obviously you have the capacity to do that. Yeah, good question. We love partnerships. It's uh, yeah, we're a dairy cooperative for 150 years this year. And yeah, cooperation is in our genes. It's uh, firstly that the first farmers got together because they thought uh, they would be stronger together. So that's always been uh, at the at the heart of uh, of Friesland Campina. Uh, and we do have a good relationship with a lot of customers uh, and we offer them a lot of different tools and services. Uh, one example is, for example, the annual trend report that we launch, which serves our customers with refreshing new trends in the market, uh, needs from consumers across the globe. It's being based on uh, on online listening, on our own research reports and on our uh, from input from our teams across the globe. And that serves as a good starting point. But we can do more. We can do uh, landscaping, for example. That's the first phase of the discovery phase when you do an NPD. We team up together with, uh, with customers. So what we do, for example, we, uh, we develop recipes. It's really turnkey, so we test them ourselves. Those can be used by customers, and it's actually being done a lot of times. But also it can serve as the perfect, yeah, as a good starting point for prototyping. And if needed, we also develop uh, ingredients specifically for customers and even with customers. That's really pr- quite new. And, uh, and on our website, uh, all the tools and different uh, options that we, uh, that we offer are, can be found. But for example, we can also help in sensory tastings and also even in, uh, in claim support. We are also a B2C uh, company next to uh, uh, delivering uh, uh, in B2B channel. So uh, we know what it's like and that sometimes you, yeah, you need to have a claim also on a product. And there we can help, for example, with uh, with dairy claims. And so this uh, the partnership with Serlandia, is that something that will continue? Yeah, if it's up to us, definitely. And also they are very positive. There are many more trends in the market that we uh, like to conquer together. So, uh, there's more people across the planet that uh, prefer to try out a, a plant-based recipes. So that could be something, uh, which is also in our trend booklet, by the way, the, the trend for conscious indulgence. So people look more at, at health. I mean, it's we're in an indulgent category. That's for sure. That will always be, I think, the number one priority. But within that field, you can still optimize on health. So it can be with additional goodies, for example, with protein, but it can also be about less sugar or gluten-free. And uh, yeah, Selandia also sees those trends. And we really complement each other since they are yeah, one step further in the value chain. So uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward and I guess you have a website that customers can go to in terms of the innovation services that you have? Yes, yeah. Thanks for the suggestion. Indeed, on our website, all those um, tools can be found, uh, what we offer to support NPD, but also different application recipes to get started. And uh, also our trend booklet. It's a free download. There was also a webinar in November that can also be listened to. So um, yeah, definitely our website would be a good uh, good place to go to. And I guess you can help people at every step of the way if, they, if they're if they more advanced and know exactly what they want or they know where they need to get to but not how to get there. You can kind of step in at any stage. Yeah, 
that's the idea. We're open to cooperation with any customer. And it depends really on the customer how far they want to take this uh, relationship. And that's also what I'm really proud now because with Celandia, we basically go now all the way even to a joint uh, commercial launch. I very much believe in this co-creation in the future. In, in sports, maybe, uh, then it's about winning and losing and you play across uh, set rules set in the beginning. But I don't think business is like that. So I think there, especially when you are um, complementary to each other, I think there's so much value if you team up together. So I'm also very proud that we did this with Celandia. Hopefully more projects will, uh, will follow and also more customers will follow this path. And it's not just cheesecakes. You've got the whole range of solutions. Yes, so we are uh, uh, well experts in uh, in desserts and in uh, in bakery, but also in in creamers, in foamers, in uh, milk tea, for example, coffee solutions. So we have a whole lot of different industries where we can work together, and even yeah, we are a dairy company. So obviously, a great range of dairy um, ingredients and solutions, but also yeah, it's we think it's a valid consumer choice. We also have options in uh, in vegan, for example. So it's not limited to dairy only. And for the, the cheesecake, is that already launched? And is that for the for consumers or is it for food service? The initial aim is for a food service channel. Yes, as I said, the first customers are doing also now their own trials on the line. And uh, I hope within a few months or weeks, you will be able to taste it yourself in uh, in food service. Yeah, they need to open. Uh, they need to open first now with the lockdown. So that's a challenge. But uh, yeah. And so what are Ceylandia and their customers saying about the cheesecake? Yeah, well, this was the cracking of the surface of cheesecakes is really a known problem. So customers are very happy to, to find out that we basically crack that code. Then we can offer a simple solution for them that works every time. And of course, that it's um, a very premium, very indulgent uh, cheesecake. And you see that sustainability is also becoming, fortunately, I think, a, a main driver so the fact that people always, I think, are looking for improvements in that area and the fact that we uh, yeah, have a really more improvement in the CO2 reduction with this cheesecake is something they are be interested in. And I think that's for this cheesecake, but you see that in general also in other uh, industries and also in the ingredients that we, uh, that we offer. So, for example, we uh, source 100% sustainable with uh, joining the uh, RSPO, the round table on the sustainable palm oil. And we were one of the initiators behind the sustainable coconut charter. So I think we're trying really to nourish a better planet. That's also for Friesland Campina. We want to lead the way in sustainability. And it's a, yeah, a key driver. So we're really trying on every aspect to uh, improve on, uh, on sustainability. Well, that's the cheesecake covered. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, we do have many more uh, innovations. We're either doing innovations developing together with customers or sometimes we see trends already in the market. Uh, we develop our own uh, innovations. Lots of it is also on the website or you can approach us and we can discuss this if you look at the uh, the innovation roadmap. So one, for example, we're into toppings. So we have a topping, a whipping agent that is really working in both cooler and warmer climates with excellent firmness and stability and a good taste as well. We have solutions in vegan, as I said. We have solutions in drinks, in coffee and milk tea with milk cap. Not sure, have you ever heard of uh, cheese tea? So that's in Asia, for example, uh, pretty big. There we also have a new innovation. So um, I would suggest uh, on the website, they can be found as well. Busy times, that's good. Yeah, and that I think uh, with COVID, I think that hit basically the whole industry. But fortunately, we obviously, but also our customers, are seeing innovation as a way also to get out of this crisis. 
we had to shift, uh, everyone had to shift to instead of meeting up um, face to face, for example, in one of our innovation kitchens in, uh, in Shanghai or in Manila uh, or here in Wageningen in the Netherlands in Food Valley, we had to shift to an, uh, an online cooperation and you can even do online tasting sessions, for example. So um, innovation, the innovation en engine is uh, running uh, at high speed still. Now we're going to talk a little about food waste. Kevin Quigley is the commercial director at UK food waste recycling and sustainability company Warren's Group. And we'll talk about the effects on food waste of Brexit, the pandemic and more. So I'll introduce myself as Kevin Quigley. I'm the commercial director for Warren's Group Limited, which is also incorporating Emerald Biogas. The group and the companies within it collect food waste from a range of sectors including the hospitality and catering sector, which is, I suppose, specific to what we want to talk about today, but also the food manufacturing, supermarket sector, NHS, schools, whole sort of range and gambit of different aspects who sort of uh, produce food waste in their daily lives, in essence. We collect that across a large region, which includes the northeast, Cumbria, North Yorkshire, southern borders area of Scotland on a daily basis. And we do it in a number of ways, sort of what we term bin waste collections, which would be probably common to people that would see them outside the um, pubs, hotels and restaurants, but also in large bulk containers for the food manufacturing sector. Having collected that food waste, we take it to our anaerobic digestion facility at Newton Aycliffe. Uh, we've been operating since 2011, so 10 years now in the region. Uh, the first commercially sized anaerobic digestion business in the northeast. We currently treat about 80,000 tonnes of food waste per annum, and we convert that into electrical energy and gas to grid. And more recently, we fuel our vehicles. So we have a sustainable and circular route from collecting food waste from our customer base and utilising it in a as sustainable uh, version as possible. And what are the issues that are being created by Brexit with respect to food waste? Brexit in itself has probably not had a huge effect for us, purely from the sense that a lot of what we collect is produced in the UK market, consumed in the UK market, albeit we don't necessarily see any signs, although I suspect in the coming months and years, we may see potentially a change in the waste streams, particularly if there are issues on supply chains, etc., etc., which we've heard a lot about in recent months. And there may be possibility that some of those food waste streams probably won't reach the British consumer, um, either through pricing or just difficulty of uh, import-export. But by and large, we're a little bit insulated from Brexit other than from that sort of aspect. And what about the pandemic? How has that affected things? So that's a more interesting and, and, and challenging situation. So from the initial lockdown in um, March of uh, 20, uh, our business was severely affected. Primarily, I would say, down to the hospitality sector, which forms about a third of our, uh, in fact, slightly more uh, of our inputs to the process. We lost effectively 40% of our turnover, if you like, and feed stock, as we call it, to feed the um, anaerobic digestion facility. 
through 2020, we clawed that back in a sense by changing the focus somewhat on what we did by looking wider afield from the Northeast uh, region and collecting food manufacturing and supermarket waste from a wider radius, in essence. Um, so that has helped to fix the situation, for the want of a better uh, phrase, in a commercial sense. And by year end, we were overall about 7% down year on year in comparison to 2019. It's exacerbated again into 2021 with a further lockdown as we're currently in. And again, hospitality sector, school sector have all shut in effect. Small amount of schools still open for essential workers, but by and large, we would normally operate about six or seven vehicles in the hospitality, education, NHS catering sort of sector. Currently, we're down to three vehicles, which go sort of effectively like spokes of a wheel out into the northeast and the northwest regions. That in itself has been an ex- extreme challenge for us as a company, but we've we've tried to be innovative in terms of what we're doing and who we're talking to and who we're trying to sort of encourage to use the uh, use the facility. Are you starting to see any light at the end of the tunnel with all the vaccinations and promises of lockdown ending? I think the Prime Minister's statement last week was pretty clear in terms of a, a clear pathway. We'd like it to be a little bit quicker, I suppose, in some respects, because the figures, I suppose, in terms of infections and thankfully death rates are diminishing very, very quickly now. So it would it would appear that that surge is probably over. And, you know, the resurgence, I suppose, or a reopening of the economy can come fast enough. But even so, I think the very earliest, I suppose, we would see an upturn in particularly the hospitality sector is clearly sort of middle of May. And even then, one has concerns in respect as to how quickly that might reopen and what the landscape would look like after that point in time. How many will still be standing? How many will sort of have probably had enough in the last year and may not sort of re-emerge from the maelstrom that we've um, experienced? We've heard lots and lots about food waste more, I think, in the last year than we ever have and how much of an issue it is. Is one of your goals to reduce food waste and to help companies reduce food waste? Because obviously if there was no food waste, you wouldn't have any to collect. True in, in its simplistic form, but we actually find, and, and this is particularly true in the education sector, and we encourage school visits and we, we do host a lot of school visits, at least pre-pandemic times. Um, certainly we could have up to two dozen school visits per school year in the windows when they tend to do them. And that's really about an education program. And also we find that the more people use the facilities that we supply in terms of food waste collection, food waste collection bins, caddies, etc., etc. Actually, it does help in the general trend to make people aware of how much food they're actually wasting. It is reported, and I think it's probably been proven in recent years, that the average family, certainly up to 2019, would waste between seven and eight hundred pounds a year in food, probably from situations like, you know, looking at uh, offers and bog offs and various things in their sort of normal weekly supermarket run. But by actually actively recycling food and looking at how much they're actually wasting, it does heighten the uh, observation, I suppose, and sort of foster good practice. And um, by involving particularly primary age kids, they have a very, very positive effect in changing habits and changing the um, 
attitudes, I suppose, of the older parents in terms of how they look at it. So I think there is a definite positive nature in terms of our effect in bringing it to the fore and how we can sort of improve generally across the piece. And do you do that with companies as well to, to help them sort of sort their streams and to dispose of waste in a better way? We work with quite a few of the large blue chip food manufacturing sector in the Northeast, particularly with Greg's and SK Food and people such as that. And they're very, very aware of how much they waste. And, you know, lean manufacturing is very much to the to the fore. And then year on year, it generally diminishes over time because, again, they get a good handle from us in terms of statistical analysis and, um, you know, what they are wasting and, and how we can kind of work together and make suggestions to reduce that waste. So I think we want to be in, in this business for the long term. And primarily, our business is about renewable energy. Collecting food waste is just a methodology. And so from our point of view, if we can help our partners and our commercial partners and uh, domestic partners, if you like, to sort of do a better and and clever way of working, then I think that's to all our benefit. What do you see as some of the challenges coming up in the next year, not pandemic notwithstanding, I guess? I do think that in terms of this budget statement that's due tomorrow, I think we would all like to see a greater level of support, particularly for the hospitality sector. I think the uh, Chancellor came in for a lot of criticism about Eat Out to Help Out in, in, in August 2020. I'm not so sure from my own perception that that itself, although labelled a problem, was a problem. I know from eating out myself and in some of the local restaurants we use in North Yorkshire, that it was very well managed by the sector in terms of keeping people safe and observing the, the guidance, etc., etc. And I thought it was an excellent scheme that really did stimulate after that first lockdown. I'm not convinced he will do it again, because I think, like everything else in political life, if it's deemed to be an issue, then, you know, the last thing politicians want is bad headlines. However, I do think there are maybe other tangible ways that he can stimulate the sector and definitely sort of, we're on a precipice, I think, and, and I'm really concerned for the businesses. And I think the Northeast has been particularly badly hit by it. And uh, as I said earlier, it's just, how will they react? Who will still be wanting to trade? And how can we help them to sort of make that transition? Because I think it'll be slow. It'll be months um, before we can get that back to uh, the sort of levels we would like to see it. And I think it's a very integral part of our economy and a very integral part of our communities and how we work. You know, uh, we tend to be very gregarious people and we like to be social and we like to be outside. And I think that whole sector is very, very important. In the same way as we have food webs and food chains, businesses in the hospitality industry don't stand alone. They're a big part of the entire fabric of society, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and I've got a hint from reading some of the sort of pre-statement press releases and I suppose a little bit of leakage out of central government. And, you know, there's a hint that he may put four or five hundred million into a fund to allow communities to sort of maintain or keep or buy Uh, their local pub, because I suppose the anticipation is that some of these have been failing anyway for quite a number of years, and they are the hub of a community. And it's sort of very important that, uh, you know, I see a lot of the Yorkshire villages, you know, that did have maybe multiple pubs. If best, they maybe have one now. And um, it would be an absolute shame to the fabric of society if those were lost, because they are social centres. 
and, and very important, I think, in the cultural life of the UK. Now we're going to talk about rehydration after exercise. Good Sport is a new sports drink that is 97% dairy, and it was created by Michelle McBride, who's the Good Sport Nutrition founder and CEO. I wonder if we could start by telling me the background of the story as to why you have developed this product. Sure. So I'm a mom with children who are involved in sports and fitness. And my son's in particular has been a dedicated baseball player since he was little. And at all of his games, he was being offered sports drinks filled with artificial ingredients. And I didn't want him drinking those. I knew hydration was important, but not at that cost. And so we tried all the, you know, the natural products that were available. He really didn't like the taste. And I learned that they didn't provide any hydration above that of plain water. So I was really looking for a sports drink from a natural source that would provide truly effective hydration. And so that was our goal. I had been bringing him chocolate milk as a healthy alternative as a recovery option after his games and practices. And it was really the chocolate milk that sparked the inspiration to look at milk as a source of hydration. And when I did that, I did a little research. I learned that milk is actually packed with electrolytes and the right balance of carbs to provide effective hydration, and that there are scientific studies that show milk is more hydrating than traditional sports drinks and water. So it was then and there that I decided I need to try to make a sports drink from milk. And was that the spark that got you started with that? Because often people say, well, you know, this just isn't cutting it, but making that jump from needing a product to actually going out and doing your own, how did that process work, I guess? I guess there was a period of, you know, momentary insanity (laughs) that led me to give this a try. But it was really with encouragement from my partner, Andy Friedman, who was the founder and CEO of Skinny Pop Popcorn. And then from the very first person we reached out to, Dr. Bob Murray, who is truly a sports hydration expert. Bob was the founder and director of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute for over 20 years. He's literally written the book on hydration. And when I met with him to discuss the idea, he said, Michelle, there really is a tremendous amount of research showing that milk is more hydrating than traditional sports drinks and water. I really can't believe somebody hasn't done this. This is a great idea. So he was in, you know, from the very beginning, helping to make sure that the drink was formulated correctly. And that's always been part of it is making sure that our product is backed by science. And so, you know, we knew as we were working on it that milk delivered the right types and amounts of electrolytes to provide effective hydration. But our concern was you know, milk's viscosity and the protein content consuming that before and during exercise is not ideal because protein is slow to digest. And so we worked with the Center for Dairy Research at the University of Wisconsin and KJ Burrington there, who showed us how ultrafiltration could be used to remove the milk's protein, but harness its electrolytes, vitamins, and carbs in a refreshing drink with the mouthfeel consumers would expect in a sports drink. And so it was the culmination of all of this expertise that clearly made it possible. 
And did you have any experience in any of this at all? I have absolutely no experience whatsoever. <laughs> all right. I always go back to my old days on the, the radio in North America when I would hear from a lot of musicians and artists that had made an album or CD as it, as it is nowadays, and, and they would have no clue. They, they'd made the music, but they had no idea how to package it, how to design a CD cover, how to get it in front of executives, how to get it in front of DJs. So th they had the idea, but it's the same with something like this. I mean, you've got the, the packaging, you've got the design, the marketing. How did you attack all of those things? Wow, that's a great question. So there, yes, there is so much that goes into developing a product beyond just the, okay, we've got this liquid that we know hydrates. Now, how do we package it and explain it in a way that consumers will understand and want to drink? So it started with the name Good Sport. So I'm an attorney by trade. <laughs> and I was also a nonprofit executive for many years. You know, when I decided to make this jump to try to get into the beverage space, I had to have like a real heart to heart with myself. Is this something that I really want to do? And so when I came up with the name Good Sport and I realized I could use the platform for much more, that it really helped me take that next step. Obviously, we came up with the name. You know, we talk about good being at the core of everything we do. Our mission is to provide highly effective sports nutrition products powered by natural ingredients and backed by science and to build a brand guided by the belief that greatness starts with goodness. It's very important to us that we use our platform to inspire a positive sports culture and support programs aimed at getting more people in the game. As a parent, I started this as a parent of an athlete, and you see some pretty atrocious behavior on the sidelines, uh, on the court, from parents, from coaches. And we really think if you start from the top up, setting a good example, we could create a more positive culture in sports so the kids want to get into sports and stay into sports because the lifelong benefits are so profound. So it started with the name. And then, you know, really with doing a lot of consumer insight research, which DMI helped us with tremendously, the dairy checkoff, we had an option of highlighting milk's participation in providing the superior hydration or not. We could have just as easily marketed this as a sports drink with naturally occurring electrolytes and vitamins and sort of save the milk part for the back of the bottle, if you will. But I really had faith in the healthy halo of milk and consumers grasping that. And that's what our testing showed, is that consumers believe milk. They don't all know it, you know, that milk contains electrolytes, but it's believable to them. They believe in milk's goodness and healthfulness. And so they're excited about this product that can now provide superior hydration for milk. So it's sort of all of those things coming together. And then, you know, we had to figure out the packaging, of course, and the flavors. And so, you know, all of that came together with, by the way, the help of a, a really smart marketing person, Cindy Alston, who has been helping us since the very beginning with the marketing and branding of Good Sport. And I guess then as well as you've got the product, you've got to get it produced at scale as well. You can't just produce it in your kitchen. So how did you tackle that? 
Well, that that was a huge tackle, actually. Another exciting part of the brand is that we are able to source our main ingredients sustainably. So dairy companies often ultra filter milk and capture its protein to use in applications like whey protein powders to standardize cheeses, etc. And then they are unable to use the part of the milk that we need for good sport, which is often called permeate, right? And so we work with dairy processors to rescue and upcycle their permeate in the use of good sport. So to go work with these processors who are used to either disposing of the permeate or sending it off to farms as feed was a whole big situation to tackle in and of itself because it's not an ingredient that was traditionally being used for human consumption. So there was that piece of it. There was the piece of finding a co-manufacturer that was willing to work with a small startup. And fortunately, we did. And we are working with a co-man that can scale with us. That was another really important part of it because we are looking to scale this thing nationally pretty quickly. And so we're working with a real top-notch, large co-manufacturer to be able to do that. So piecing it all together was quite a challenge, but we did it. A minute ago, you mentioned about the fact that this is something that traditionally the dairy producers get rid of. Uh So like, who's paying who? Are you paying them for the product or are they paying you to take it off their hands? (laughs) That's a great question. I wish uh, I was getting paid to take it off their hands, (laughs) but we have a we have a great arrangement with our supplier. And so there's a lot of efficiencies on both sides of the coin. Clean label has become a huge issue in the last couple of years, what if you were to look at the ingredient label, what, what does it have in it? Yeah, so 97% of the product or over 97% are dairy uh, ingredient, ultra filtered, deprotonized milk. And then we only use natural flavors and sweeteners and colors from natural sources. So that to us, it was... I always say, why start with the goodness of milk if we were going to add artificial ingredients? That's where I started this, was wanting a natural, clean product. And that's what we have. And so what are the flavors? Good Sport comes in lemon, lime, fruit punch, wild berry, and citrus. And I think it's, you know, important to note, too, for listeners who can't see it, this is a clear product. It looks and tastes like you would expect from a sports drink, you know, it doesn't look or taste milky. So we've gotten a lot of real wonderful feedback on the flavors, which we spent a lot of time working on because as Dr. Bob Murray would tell you, your tastes change when you're sweating, when you're working out. And so we specifically formulated these flavors to taste great when you need it the most, when you're working your hardest and sweating. And so is it currently on the market? It is. It's available on Amazon and at goodsport.com. And we will be available in select retailers this spring in the Midwest here in the U.S. Obviously, if it's already available, what's the reaction been like to it so far? Truly, it's been wonderful. We've had a lot of great response. People love the flavors. Uh, We've had people posting videos of themselves and their kids drinking and enjoying the drinks. And it's fun after all this work (laughs) and hardship, it's really wonderful to see and to get comments talking about how refreshing it is and delicious and how, you know, quote, I'm addicted. Those are wonderful things to hear, especially this early on. So the next thing is you need sponsorship from, you need to get the Chicago Cubs using it or... 
Or the White Sox. Oh, the White Sox. Sox. are all over here. Oh, you are? Okay. <laughs> Chicago's a great sports town, so we've got lots of opportunities here. How are you getting the word out there? Is it just word of mouth or is a lot of social media involved? Yeah, so we're getting it out there really through education um, and educational opportunities to talk to people about, you know, the importance of hydration and the components of milk that provide superior hydration and the scientific testing that was done on Goodsport to show that it does provide this superior hydration that we've been talking about, which is another thing we didn't get into. But this past year in 2020, we had Good Sport tested at a top tier university to look at the hydration efficacy. And what it demonstrated was that Good Sport delivers rapid and long lasting hydration. And that in fact, a bottle of Good Sport provided hydration for two hours after it was consumed, which was really a tremendous finding that they were excited about. And the, the study was peer reviewed and published in the journal Nutrients this summer. And how much do you have to drink for, an, for that to be the case, like just one bottle? Or? It was one bottle. Mm-hmm. And what's the capacity of the bottles? The bottles are 16.9 ounces or 500 milliliters. You would drink it during or afterwards? Before, during, and after, and actually there's a section on our website that talks about that. This is a drink that is meant to provide hydration, and it's one of the best tools for performance is staying properly hydrated. So if you come into your competition hydrated, stay hydrated, you're going to perform that much better. And if you hydrate after, you're going to recover that much better. It's something that obviously you, you developed it for your for your kids that were playing. Was it, I don't know, was it baseball or softball? Baseball, basketball, oh, softball, everything. everything. Yeah. Yeah, but obviously it has wider application than just kids recreationally. It could be used by anybody at the elite level as well. One hundred percent. So this is, and actually we have several professional teams here in the U.S. that are drinking Good Sport as we speak. Our core target is active people, regardless of age, who care about hydration for performance. And, you know, that's pretty much everybody who should be staying properly hydrated when they are working out or playing sports. My kids were the inspiration, but certainly this is a product meant for adults. Their inspiration and your perspiration. That's right. (laughs) I like that. I guess this is going to be something that we should be hearing a lot more of in the future then. That's my hope. We plan to be out there and available to everybody who needs it. You were saying earlier, you were thinking that, am I crazy for doing this? So obviously you're kind of glad you did. I'm absolutely glad that I did. You know, there's been a lot of ups and downs as any entrepreneur will go through, but it has been absolutely exhilarating and just an incredible, incredible experience. And now we're getting to see the fruits of our labor. So it's fantastic. Now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. This has been a very strong week for the dairy market, um, with butter and skim milk powder both increasing strongly on prices. I guess this is in line with a lot of commodity markets this year, the likes of energy, precious metals, etc. The March butter was up around 300 
330 euros on the week around the 40 40 80 level quarter two butter was up over 500 euros on the week to around the 43 20 level and then quarter three butter was up over 480 euros to 43 65 70 level quarter four butter was up around almost 500 euros on the week to 4400 euros level this was also in line with butter which was very strong in the gdt yesterday and we had the overall gdt was up around 15 percent and butter was up about 13.7 percent march skimmel powder also quite strong up around 80 85 euros on the week to the 24.50 level quarter two was up about 100 euros 24.65 level same for quarter three uh, up to around 2500 level up 100 euros on the week also and quarter four was almost up 100 euros in the week as well to the 25.40 level. Whey also was slightly stronger, uh, trading around the 900 euros level. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that wraps up another podcast. I think we're in decent shape for the next one as well, but you never know. Sometimes you have interviews all set up and something messes it up, but that's okay. Life happens. Speaking of which, it's probably time to check in on the status of the living room and how much schoolwork has been done while I've been recording this, or whether there's some Lego being built instead, or an episode of Danger Mouse being watched. If so, I'll probably end up watching that as well. Fractions can wait. So, wherever in the world you may be, I hope you have a great week. Please take care, stay safe, and, as always, thanks for listening.